This morning's reading will be from 1 Peter 2, just verses 11 and 12. I'll give you a second to turn there, and your version of Scripture will be in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. The Word of God says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that by it we would be illumined this morning, that your spirit would be among us, instructing us in righteousness, growing us by the means of grace that you've provided, and namely preaching the word and participating in the table this morning. We pray, Father, that... Uh, our good deeds would truly set us apart and that you would grow us in these things. As we hear your word preached this morning, Lord, let us not leave this, this place unchanged. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> as I mentioned last week, as we were in uh, kind of summarizing uh, verse 8 into verse 9 and 10, the portion we had last week of understanding election. Um, something we need to remember, as I mentioned, election unto salvation. Hopefully you've had some time to meditate on that doctrine uh, between last week and this week, or it prompted you to think afresh about election and uh, how election works from God's standpoint and the gift of grace that he bestows um, but understanding unconditional election, that is that God elects unto salvation without conditions being met by the one whom he elects. It's an election unto redemption without uh, condition. And as we covered last week, which again is a bit thorny, <clears throat> but we need to grasp it. We need to take it to the Lord in prayer as we struggle over it. And we can struggle over it in any number of ways. Inappropriately taking a victory lap, which is, again, no one would do purposely, but perhaps by handling the doctrine poorly. And then also we can struggle over it with some measure of injustice on God's part, and our conscience is troubled. But so as we considered it together, unconditional election unto salvation and its consequent, which is reprobation, which we spoke of, which is uh, kind of uh, spoken of by Peter quickly, but at the end of verse 8, they stumble. Why? They disobey. But wh wh why this heart toward the rock that, that is Christ? They were destined for this. Again, whether it's election or it's consequent, which is reprobation. When rightly understood by the grace of God in our lives, helping us to grasp it, what will be the outcome of rightly held truth? It will produce Christian humility. It will produce. This is, this is the means toward its production, is rightly understanding the gift of grace that you possess in Christ. Understanding this produces Christian humility. And I say Christian because... When I say humility, and I trust that you think on these terms as well, humility can have somewhat of a wax nose. It's hard to pinpoint. It's hard to grasp. 
we've spoken of this often. Humility is actually a, a, a tough thing to describe and a tough thing to then uh, identify in someone's life. It, it's not as easy as we think. I don't mean to overthink it, but it's not simple either. When we think of doctrine rightly grasped, and as we understand the gift bestowed, of which we are experiencing in our lives, as we speak of it in terms of a pilgrim's journey, we're experiencing tremendous benefit in our lives, in our conscience, in a cleansing of our sin. This tremendous gift of grace to us produces humility. I do not mean that it produces an ambiguous feeling of lowliness. That, 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 that you sense uh, that, that you're, you're, and you constantly speak that you are below everyone around you. You're no good at anything. And again, I, I, I won't be a dead horse. We've discussed this multiple times on the level of what does humility mean and what does it look like for it to be Christian humility. I think what we'll see here in a few moments from Peter will give us clarity on this. But when we speak of humility, I'm speaking of evidences. So, so if you want to jot down, I'm going to kind of describe it here as we move forward in the text. But track with me when I say election unto salvation and its consequent, of which you're aware. Even if you don't completely unwind and grasp, you're aware of its consequent, which is reprobation. When this doctrine of grace is rightly understood, it will produce in me Christian, distinctly Christian humility. And by that, we don't simply mean a spirit of lowliness. What do we mean then? We're speaking of evidences in our lives. So, so if I'm a Christian I, I, and I see humility being performed in me by the gift of Christ through his spirit because I belong to him, I should see evidences which are being produced through my understanding of the great value of salvation. That's what we're talking about. So, so we're not talking about a simple feeling. Are you humble? Yeah, he always seems to speak with a low tone. That, that, that's not the same thing. We're, we're talking about something concrete, something measurable, something life-giving. Evidences which are produced in my life through an understanding of the great value of salvation. This humility, again, humility of what I'm speaking of and describing, of which Peter is going to address, is evidently harmonious. And, and hopefully that makes sense. Uh, so, so, so if you jot that down and think on it together, lay it to conscience. This Christian humility is evidently harmonious to something. It corresponds to something. The evidences in my life are harmonious or correspond to something else. It's evident. And these evidences correspond. They're not hard to define. They're not ambiguous. They're harmoniously evident with the knowledge of the gift that has been bestowed upon me. I, 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 I grasp it through the preaching of the word. I grasp it at the table that I approach. And then, and then what comes up through this nutrition is evidences of my grasping it. 
And, and, and these evidences are harmonious to what? The knowledge that I possess of the gift that has been bestowed upon me. The greater my understanding, which is the pursuit of the Christian life, that, 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 that we understand you were once not a person, if you individualize it, or, or as Peter describes it corporately, you were at one time not a people. You are now, by a gift of grace, a people. Then as that people, as those people, you begin to dig deeper. It's called discipleship. You begin to grow. You begin to read. Not simply to grasp information, but by the means of that information, to be transformed. This is the goal. This, this is the work. This is the labor. As, as you're here in this age that you're experiencing is fading away and you're emerging into the age that is to come. So you're talking about your life, however long it lasts, here in your pilgrim's journey. You are growing in Christ. This is, this is something that you're yearning for. This is something you want to do. And what comes with that greater understanding of growth and this greater sense of the gift that I have been given in salvation, the more persevering fruit should be manifest. Again, I don't say that because everyone's looking at you, so you better make sure you have some fruit on your tree. I mean this from your own sense of valuation. Because fruit evaluating in somebody else's life is it's a tricky business. Um, there's, there's, there's many things at work in an individual's life. Um, there are many what we say moving parts. And to the mysterious work of God through the gift of grace... There are different measures of grace experience and there are different measures of faith to each one that is given. Again, that's why there are noses, eyes, hands, ears in the dynamic of the body that Paul refers to. There, there are many, many parts. And each one is in service to the whole. Um, but, but the mind is not to be compared to the toe, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. To, to then evaluate one another's growth, and, and is it legit, and how much is there in the harvest bushel, uh, and how much is hanging on the trees, and how much has been spurned, is a losing proposition often for all of us. Yet there is a way by faith that we lay it up to conscience as we pursue through prayer Christ. We ask that he give us a method of a, a measure of assurance that we belong to him. And, and that is his joy to do, to produce fruit in you. See Galatians 5. This is his work. He, he's producing it. Um, and, and pray that you discern it and that you see it and that others do affirm it graciously as we practice affirmation with one another. This is the pursuit of the Christian life. That my life would evidence measurable fruit that corresponds to my knowledge of the gift that has been bestowed. This is why Peter, as we've spoken again and again throughout his letter, 
This is why Peter, and, and any other epistle for that matter, but Peter's words of exhortation to us, which he will urge upon us in a moment, always follow after his descriptions of grace in your life. So it's a cart and horse kind of uh, issue. He, he, he wants you to grasp the gift that's been bestowed so that in that gift and in that place of understanding, you're motivated for a life that corresponds evidently so. So he describes who you are, the gift that's been bestowed, and then he urges you, improve upon it. Live a life correspondent to it. Notice the text of verse 9 and 10 as we looked at last week. Why? Well, because as I'm describing, it will follow into verse 11 quite naturally that he'll urge you upon this information. So, so then he describes after reprobation that these individuals were destined to stumble over this rock of offense. And as you stand in awe of the miracle of, of God's electing grace and stand in awe of the mysterious unknown of God's sovereign power and, and what it is left to him to decide over creation, Peter encourages you and me, uh, if indeed you say my faith rests on Christ this morning, he then wants you to know that you were a chosen race. That's the church of Jesus Christ, all in membership to her. But you are a chosen race. Do you grasp that gift that's been bestowed? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people, you know, for his own possession. You're possessed by him. But then he said, but so that you may proclaim his excellencies. The excellencies of him who called you <clears throat> out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Not just even another people, but you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you. Again, perhaps you've uh, studied First Peter before or been a part of a Bible study, done some outside reading. So perhaps you're aware that it was this section, um, verse 9 and 10 of First Peter, that inspired the lyrics of Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be? We've sang that here at Redeemer. I imagine you've sang it at different times, a, a powerful, moving song. Uh, it, 9 and 10 from last week inspired these words. So I'll just briefly read them for you because you're familiar. You've sang them before, but I'll just draw it to your remembrance. He describes it this way, <clears throat> as you also have sang it. Long... My imprisoned spirit lay. So he's drawing this out again uh, uh, of 9 and 10. Fast bound in sin in nature's night. And then as he describes uh, him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You remember the way uh, uh, Wesley describes it in the hymn. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. The response, I woke. The dungeon where I was flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose. I went forth. Do you remember the end? And I followed thee. Do you see the response? So, so I, I fast bound in nature's night, depraved, born in sin, natural generation from my folks. Natural rebellion against God, the path I'm on. Thine eye, at your point, diffused a quickening ray. 
What, what, what did it do? It quickened me to life. What happened? By change, they fell right off. That, that, that's what happened. The, the dungeon I was in flamed with a light. I arose and I went forth. But, but where did you go from there? Understanding that he diffused a quickening ray that transformed and changed your life. Where'd you go? Did you just take off? No, 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 no. I did take off indeed. But where? I followed thee. That's the path. That's the pilgrim's journey. That's where you go from here. Grace always, always inspires and produces gratitude. That, that, that's what it does. You move from guilt, this is who you are, fast bound in sin and nature's night, to grace, thine eye diffused a quickening ray, to gratitude, I rose, I went forth, and I followed thee. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Luther comments, what are we to do now? This is his commentary following 9 and 10. What are we to do now? Are we to be idle? To be sure, it would be best for us to die. Then all of this would be ours. You know, right, that's, that's Paul describing to the church, it, which would be better for me to be with Christ. Oh, I'd rather be with Christ, but it's better that I be with you. This, so this, the desire for the Christian to indeed lay hold of the inheritance. Peter even described it. It's being kept in heaven for you. It's being kept. So Luther's point, what would be best for us at this point? Well, to die and to lay hold of it. Then all this would be ours. But since we are still living here, we should do for our neighbor as God has done for us and give ourselves to him as God has given himself to us. This is the focus that Peter will now turn to the same. What should I do on my pilgrim's journey as I follow after thee? Well, as you follow after thee, conduct yourself as one who belongs to thee in an age that is passing away. Meaning, as you interact with this age, those people that Luther describes as your neighbor, as Christ describes as your neighbor, interact in such a way that they can see the evident fruit that you distinctly belong to another. There's a harmonious nature to, a harmonious evidence to your life that it's been changed. And they're not saying, oh, they always seem to speak last and always have the quietest tone. They must be humble. No, that's not what he's describing. He's describing actual Christian evidences in a place where there is a lack of Christian presence. You're passing your time evidently as one who has their chains fallen off, experienced a quickening ray, and you have gone forth, and you are amongst the lost, but following after Christ. Give ourselves to our neighbor as he has given himself to us. This is the view that Peter will turn to here in verse 11, 12, and then you see it continues down in 13. He'll go down through 13 in various relations. He'll go down to verse 18 in another set of relations. Again and again and again, speaking of your conduct. Peter moves from grace, your destiny, your experience of election. It's inestimable riches unto gratitude. Notice the verse then. 
Beloved, verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, very reasonable. And I want you to catch this as an important piece of the text. A very reasonable and even good translation of the Greek term agapetoi, that you don't need to know what that is, other than what's being translated in the English text if you're, if you're reading an ESV translation. The translation of the text comes across as I have read for you, beloved. And it's replete throughout the New Testament, the same term being translated beloved. But it is a very reasonable and even good translation of the text, perhaps just perhaps more awkwardly read. But what would be fitting in this moment is if the term was translated, dear friends. Beloved, same way, again, in English, perhaps, I just want to create the context for you that his apostolic appeal is affectionate. Dear friends. Again, it would make sense to say beloved because it carries the same connotation, but hear it more graphically in terms of friendship. Dear friends, I, I, I think it's important to note, and I bring it up to you because if you, we go back to our study in the book of Galatians, that is something for me pastorally and personally as a believer that I took away from our time in Galatians that affected my mind in a particular way was the way in which Paul speaks to a very difficult situation with a spirit of love. Um, you remember he talks about his affections for them, and their affections for him. And in this really, really bad, tough situation, he calls them brothers. And it just struck, stuck out to me and struck me as I was reading the text. If you go back to a really, really difficult New Testament letter, 1 Corinthians, and you spend some time there, and you have some background there, you know 1 Corinthians is a real hot mess situation. And the apostle is interacting with it. And you remember, he gets very severe, very severe. But if you read the tone as well, he picks his spots to call them brothers. I think it's a significant way to recognize apostolic tone and then to apply it in your own life in the web of relations that you possess. It's important to note the severity of the concern is either perceived or lost in the tone of the appeal. Peter's going to make a twofold exhortation that we're going to cover here just for a couple of moments. And you're going to see it very easily. The grammar stands out to you. Verse 11, I urge you, uh, he says, to abstain. And then verse 12, he's asking you to keep. So again, he's going to make a twofold exhortation that we'll cover just briefly, but it's a negative and a positive. But in doing so, before he sets the exhortation, he, he kind of he, he puts the golf ball on the tee with tone. He, he, he sets it up for a good drive. It's just, here I want to set it up so that we go long and straight with this. He sets it up how? By the right tone. He strikes the right tone so that the hearer can listen. It reminds them that I'm not setting about a legalistic structure for you to deny you fun in this age and pleasure and relations. That you can't be friends with anybody and disassociate with all. Live in a monastic community and withdraw from all things. I, 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 dear friends, you see there's an appeal there. I wanna say just a moment, and this is kind of a left foot pivot, but as a parent, and as a lot of moms having children, 
and many toddlers set about and we trust are going to grow in grace and wisdom here at Redeemer and in the homes that are present here. I want to encourage all parents, and then we can apply it to any web of relations that we possess. To those who aren't parents, please don't just neglect. But remember, it makes sense, as the apostle would appeal in affection. Because why? Because he, he wants the severity of the concern to be rightly perceived. So I would think at most baseline for parents, remember it's twofold in your interaction with your children. Not everything is a 10. Right? Remember, be careful. If everything's a 10, nothing is. Be wise in tone. Read the text carefully and you see the apostle doing the same. Dear friends, but also, neither is it unto mom and dad to possess only the voice of a one. Don't be permissive. You must, as Peter does, as Paul does, as your ministers do, I hope, possess two voices. One of gathering and one of driving away. One of severity and one of warmth. And we as parents and others in relation need to pick those spots very carefully and thoughtfully as we seek to raise our children and to grow in nourishing relationships with fellow believers. In all of life, no matter the relations, remember words of correction. So you're about to correct a child. You, you, you wanna set about a constructive relation. You're about to give a word of correction. Remember yourself in the matter. Words of correction are hard to receive. No, no one signs up and says, I want to be corrected today. I, I, I'm hoping for a word of severity from a close friend. No one, no one. And, and the friend doesn't want to be put in a situation where he has to offer them. It's a bad situation for everybody, the receiver and the giver. No one's asking to enter into that relation. What could we do better by and in going into the relation? Remembering, naturally, words of correction are hard to receive. When you're getting ready to correct your child, and you don't want to make it a cut by a thousand, uh, uh, death by a thousand cuts, where I just speak, speak, and 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 speak. Remember then, words of correction are naturally hard to receive. Even for a kid this size, he's not looking to have you boss him. So they're naturally hard to see, no, and that never goes away. You're not looking to be bossed. Naturally, words of correction are hard to receive. Words of warning then, remember, Dad, words of warning to your young men, words of warning to your young ladies, words of warning can be easily dismissed. Words of correction, hard to receive. Words of warning, please don't go forth doing this, are easily dismissed with a hand wave away. This is natural in your condition. It's natural to a little one. What must we do? What will help? So that they won't go la, 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 or just hand gesture dad away and still be riding his bike up and down the street that you just said, get out of the road. Where are we at here? How can I improve upon these relations in my words of correction? Tone. Tone, as we see here with the apostle. Tone from dad. Tone from mom sobriety, seriousness, interactions, so that they perceive the severity of the concern, I strike the right tone. 
right? Tone helps the hearer perceive the nature of the concern. If I speak like this when the kid is jumping off the roof, they will not perceive from me that jumping is a bad decision. They already don't want to receive that from me. I need to help them receive that from me. Tone helps me. Tone helps the hearer. So also Peter, dear friends. Tone helps the hearer perceive the nature of the concern and serves to open him or her up to receiving it. Again, when everything is a 10, nothing is. When everything is a 1, nothing is. Nothing is also a 10 when everything is a 1. Please lay that to your conscience in your interaction as couples, husband to wife, in the way that you speak to those who are under you in the workplace, those who are raising young ones. Remember, tone helps them understand what you mean and sets about the right way to receive it. This is why Peter appeals in verse 11, dear friends. Now notice the text, I urge you, this, dear friends, because if, he's, if he doesn't say it properly, perhaps, again, it's easily rejected or dismissed with a hand wave. Beloved, dear friends, I'm urging you as sojourners and exiles to do what? To abstain from the passions of the flesh. The phrase, the passions of the flesh, what are they? I think it's somewhat easily accessible, right? You live in the flesh at times. You grasp this bodily principle with which you live and all of its corruptions. You sense it and you feel it. The passion of my flesh. It essentially describes my carnal cravings that are sourced to my depravity. If we were to easily summarize, I'm asking you, I'm, ur I'm urging you as a friend. You have my affection. I pray for you. I care for you. I love you. I'm urging you to please abstain from the passion of your flesh. What do you mean? I'm asking you to put away the carnal cravings that you sense, that you see in your mind, in your hands, and in your mouth that you know are sourced, not in Christ, but in depravity. Flesh principle that we all live with must be actively and aggressively fought. You see, notice the text as he speaks of severity. <clears throat> this is a major point of the text that you must lay to conscience. Verse 11, dear brothers, I'm urging you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passion of the flesh. Notice why. Notice the description of just how gory the, 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 the flesh principle in the war is going on. Notice how gory it is, which wage war against what? Against your soul. You see, if you embrace that text and you read it quite simply, as a believer, let's say you're having your, your, your devotional time, you're reading through the text, or you're just meditating on something for, for a portion of time, and you come across this text and it says, I urge you, Adam, as a sojourner in exile. Well, hang on, am I in exile? Yeah, yeah, we've already covered that in chapter 1, verse 18. Throughout your time of exile, knowing you've been ransomed. We've already been introduced to that in chapter 1, verse 1. You're in elect what? Exile. Okay, so now I'm, I'm urging you the same as you know. You're a sojourner in exile. You're a pilgrim in this land. 
as you pass your pilgrim journey, please, as your brother, as your friend, I'm asking, I'm urging you, abstain from the passion of your flesh. How bad will it be if I indulge? It wages war against your soul. You see, you read that, and if you embrace that as true, then you believe there is a real and actual war going on. Very few times do we think of our own overindulgences and poor behavior as waging war on our souls. We might not receive that quite so simply as truly my decisions here are affecting my soul. That's why he urges it to you to reconsider. I'm urging you, please, because these things are waging a war against your soul. Take stock. Again, if you receive that there is a real war going on, I want to draw your attention to think on the real and raw violence of warfare. We've been covered in war and war headlines now for better part of 20 years. We should have some measure of understanding of the raw violence of warfare. If we were to say, so I narrow it down to two things that happen in war. And, and the reason I want to list this to you so that you can think of it is Peter urges you as your dear friend and apostolic father, your dear friend in the faith. He's urging you to abstain, and he wants you to know that there's a war going on within you. That there's a war of the flesh and the devil and the world. As you pass your time here, there is an actual war. And that war is here to dismember your soul. So, so if I think of warfare, I think of two things for sure that I need to know happens in war. Number one, lives are taken. People die. This we know of war. We just know this intuitively. We go into it expecting it. We go into it knowing it. P Peter is saying, well, then expect in your pilgrim's journey the experience of war and understand what is at stake. Lives will be taken. People will die. Secondly, what happens in warfare? Again, lots of things, but I think two basic concepts that we can consider in our spiritual lives. Number one, people die. And number two, what was at one time organized is brought to ruin. What was at one time organized is brought to ruin. In other words, we're speaking of devastation. Again, you, you can look in, uh, on TV, and uh, a, a few years ago, uh, you look at uh, any time in the Middle East, really, but, but, but you look back and you consider Syria. There was, there was uh, the complexity of what's going on in Syria, and, and they were showing it on the news regularly if you were watching the news, and you just see the destruction of a military turning on its people and so on and so forth and rogue governments, and you just watch the buildings. Look at the warfare and the devastation. What is at one time organized, historic, and beautiful is devoured and destroyed and devastated. I'm just accenting to you two things. Lives are lost. Things organized are brought to ruin. So, how does that apply to the text for us in the sense of spiritual warfare? Well, the passions, as Peter describes here, that your passionate flesh, the, the cravings of your depravity, the cravings of your lust, will lead to the same conclusion as physical warfare. Death of spiritual assurance is sure to follow indulgent lusts. Death of spiritual assurance will absolutely follow indulgent lust. Look at verse uh, chapter 1 just briefly. Chapter 1, verse 8. Look at the description, and then consider your life in overindulgent lust, a lack of self-discipline and regulation, a loss of virtue. 
what do you think will be? Like if, you, if, you're, if I were to say, indulge in your worst vice, and you're like, okay, great. And then I ask you, what do you think will be the experience in the aftermath? Will it be things like this text, verse 8? Though you have not seen him, you love him. Think of your overindulgent flesh. Will that correspond? Will that speak to you when you read verse 8? Though you have not seen him, Adam, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. What's the experience of a believer that, 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 that rose, went forth, and followed thee? What's the experience? What does he say? You rejoice. That's your experience. What is the further joy that, that I have in salvation? You experience joy in your life. A joy of what kind? Inexpressible. What's it filled with? How does it nourish me with glory? What will it obtain? The outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. That's the experience of a pilgrim's journey that is disciplined in following Christ. Joy, peace, harmony, relations that are balanced and in right accord. Assurance that I belong to him and he belongs to me. Death of spiritual assurance is sure to follow. You will, believer, you will be unsteady on your feet when you indulge in lust and look for assurance of salvation. You will find unsteadiness there. You will lack joy and confidence that Christ intends for you. There is a war that will be waged. Where? Deep down in the soul. The second thing, as I mentioned in war, time, uh, what it brings is the things that were organized are brought to ruin. I can't warn you enough as your pastor, as your friend, that devastation will attend to your well-organized physical life as well. When your lusts run rampant and, and vice is present without Harnessing, without fighting, without prayer, without vigilance, devastation follows indulgence. Fathers will lose children. Husbands will lose wives. This we know. And we track back, why is my marriage um, imploding? Why do I have disharmonious relations with my children? Why don't those people respect me? We're trying to, trying to figure out how have things gotten to where they are. When at one time they were harmonious. When at one time they were worth peace. There was joy filled, inexpressible. We prayed together. We sang together. Um, I, I, I loved my wife and she loved me. How have we found ourselves in a place here? Because you didn't obey the urging to keep a well-maintained life, to go forth, not randomly, but to go forth following after thee. You gave place to lust. You gave place to vice. Vice had its natural outcome. A war was waged on your soul, and you experience a lack of assurance and destruction to what was at one time lovely and well-organized. Now you're losing your job. Now you're losing your home. 
How did I get to where I am? As we've mentioned before, it is a slow fade. What should I do? I should hear Peter when he says to me, Dear friend, I'm urging you, abstain from these things. What's really at stake? Everything. Again, one author writes, as long as the flesh and blood remain, so long sin also remains in us. Consequently, constant warfare is necessary. He who does not experience the urge to constant warfare dare not boast he is a Christian. Finally, and I want to move quickly here as we move to the Lord's table, consider the positive. I did mention to you at the beginning there's a negative to abstain, and there's a positive exhortation as well, which you see in verse 12, keep your conduct honorable. Like, keep it thoughtful and keep it honorable, uh, aware in the public sphere. He refers to Gentiles here, generally speaking, Gentiles as unbelievers. So keep your conduct among the unbelieving honorable. Um, let me follow the text, and then I'll... I'll speak briefly to it. Verse, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the unbelieving community, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, notice the text says when, not if. That, that's how you're supposed to read that. that so, so that when they speak evil against you as an evildoer or, or as an evildoer, they may see your good deeds, your virtues, and they'll glorify God. When is this going to take place? On the day of visitation. The exhortation here uh, to keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles um, can be applicable in a number of ways, but it more finally addresses our natural desire for acceptance. That's where you need to uh, put down a foot, really be strong-minded. Your, your natural desire, yours, mine, when I say yours, all of us, ours, our natural human inclinations, our natural desires are to be well-liked and well-received. If only we could be so universally understood and accepted, man, would that be glory. That, that is, that, so so we're, no one is. So then we set about little ways in which we can be at least relatively well understood and relatively well thought of. Um, so, so that inclination that is natural to be well received and well thought of leads down, if not carefully maintained, a disastrous path of compromise. This, this is what he's warning, warning you about. You, you'll be among the unbelieving. You're a pilgrim on the way, and your natural inclination to be well-received and well-understood and well-taken will lead you to dishonorable acts if you are not vigilant. I simply speak, there's a number of applications here, but they're going to be particular to you, of which you need to be mindful of. I don't exist in your friendship relations. I don't know what they are. I mean, we're friends. I don't mean that. I simply mean, you know, I'm not there with you each and every time. You hang out with whoever it is you're hanging out. And so you're going to have to contextualize what those social pressures and cues are that you need to be vigilant against. Society will simply say an adopted behavior is, is okay. You can't go in your morals by society's standard. You can't do that. I urge you, reconsider. You need to go by scripture's standards of morality. Because morality, right, is always kind of changing based on our conditioning. If we've been conditioned 
that certain things and aberrant behaviors are well-received and we're wicked for saying something against them, our desire to be well-received and liked by others will cause us to pivot and endorse, participate in, or accept what God says is aberrant. Well, we would never just walk out and be like, I don't agree with God on homosexuality. I don't agree with God on public drunkenness. I don't agree with God on immorality. No, no, we wouldn't. We would just feel the Gentiles who we love and are with and care for are making us feel the weight of our being a follower. That natural inclination will cause us, if not careful, to endorse, participate in, or accept aberrant behavior. They will speak of you as an evildoer because of it. <clears throat> Peter holds out a word of encouragement. <clears throat> Maintain persevering fruit because you're not following nothing, you're following Christ. And in so doing, remember, love thy neighbor as thyself. And in so doing, remain a light of the gospel. How can I find persevering strength in doing so? Remember in chapter 1, your inheritance is held out and kept for you in heaven. I know that seems a long way off. It always does. Lord's Day helps it be feeling to feel a little closer. That's why it's so important we do this. One of the many reasons. It helps us reorient, re-kind of calibrate. Peter motivates you by the day of visitation. He is going to return. I know at times that can feel just kind of way out there and hard to grasp, but it motivates when rightly thought of and meditated upon. He will return. And in that return, no matter how hard it was in your pilgrim's journey, there will be a day of vindication, not of your moral righteousness, but that the Catholic faith was true and right. Following Christ indeed, was true and his work in my life was real and in that day of vindication I will see it so but for today we hear it in his word and we see it in his table let's pray father we ask that you would open our eyes to see and give us ears to hear hearts to receive the challenging moral standards to society Help us to pass our time wisely in our own private life of abstaining from fleshly indulgence and in our public sphere to our neighbors. Help us to be wise. Help us to be thoughtful. Help us to be Christian in our interactions. Lord, as we don't see you but love you, help us to at least perceive you truly in your table. We know that your spirit works through your word. We come and that's what we expect. That's what we've experienced. We know this to be true. Thank you for the assurance that you've given, not only to the hearing and to the mind, but to the eyes and to the mouth and to the hands as we approach your table. Thank you for this twofold assurance in our life and the important means of grace that each are to our persevering. Bear out from these things fruits. That assure us, give us a sense of direction, indeed, identity, that we belong to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.